So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God. Every year on Good Friday, the Friday before Easter, our church joins with Uptown Community Church for a joint service of worship and celebration and remembrance. And every year, the, the music coordinator at Uptown uh, in, asks if I would be willing to play the drums with their band. And I'm glad to serve. I enjoy it. 
but as the years go on, I play less and less to where in the last two years, I really don't play much at all. And the music there is simple enough that a year ago when they invited me, I didn't think that I needed to practice at all. Uh, and then on the day of, there's a rehearsal before the service. As I was gonna pick out what sticks I was gonna bring with me, I was in my living room and I have the table that our family eats on. And I just wanted to try out the different sticks. And when I, when I hit the table with the stick, I suddenly had this feeling like I'd never held a drumstick before. And of course, uh, with an hour left, um, practicing would do me no good. I didn't know who I could call on to find a sub. And so I had this moment of increasing anxiety as I imagined the implications of showing up. Uh, and what it felt to me was not simply that I would make a few mistakes or that you know things wouldn't be smooth, but that I would, I would show up like somebody who had never played before. That, that's how it felt in that moment. And I started to worry. And so one thing I did is I stopped myself as I, as I started imagining all the things that could go wrong. We never know the future, but that's where my mind meant. What's it going to be like in the middle of this very dramatic service? And I'm making, I'm on the noisiest instrument, uh, making a mess. Uh, I stopped and remembered I've been playing since I was 12. <laughs> I've played a lot, a lot of different scenarios. And while that is no guarantee for what will happen, it means I've been in situations before and, and I've never had complete humiliation. Um, so that helped me to show up. Uh, so at the rehearsal, we set up the drums and I sit down and the second we played, I felt fine. It was fine. Not that I played wonderfully, but, but the anxiety was, was unwarranted. Um, now, if I was in shape, any good drummer should be able to tap on a wooden table and feel okay with it. But the fact is a wooden table feels very differently than a metal cymbal or drums. Um, it shouldn't, but it does. And, and that confusion of tapping on the table, giving the, me an impression that then shaped how I was anticipating the future was, was a bit of a false impression. And I'm sharing this story because right now we're in what is for most of us an utterly unique season of our lives, this COVID pandemic. Um, but, but for the most part, most of us are trying to, to go on with life as normal. Not everyone, some people are suffering greatly. Uh, the way they're being affected, unemployment, great illness, loss of family members. For some people, this is clearly a terrible time period. But for others, it feels like an ordinary period, one that we just need to adapt to. So you need to shower and go to the bathroom and eat and sleep. And so you still need to do that. Those of you who have jobs still need to work. Those of you in school still need to go to school. Those of you who take care of others still need to take care of others. Uh, Everything we normally do, we have to do, and we just need to adapt that now school and work may be mediated through the computer. Now caring for others uh, may interrupt our workflow if you're uh, at an important business meeting, but also homeschooling your, your kids online. And so, so it feels like normal life with a few tweaks. But I wonder how many of you uh, are experiencing the increasing anxiety that seems to be part of the fear and the anger that's contagious in our culture. You know, this week we have a very crucial but very unique election in our own country. Um, and this is not an easy one. And, and how many of us are worried about the future? And, and I think what a lot of us are thinking is, well, we're tapping along as usual, but we just need to adapt to some of these things. And I think there's something about this period that's a bit misleading. <laughs> I think we're sort of tapping on the table thinking this is an evidence that, that, that there's something about our future that's wrong when the reality is uh, this period is, is far different 
then we realize and the implications of it and, and the anxiety and the fear that comes with it. So, so we're a church. What do churches do? What do Christians do in periods like this? Well, we, we get together and we pray for each other and we encourage one another and we share and we help each other. And we remember God's kindness and, and we, we pray and, and entrust ourselves to God. And we've been doing that. We've been worshiping. We've been having home groups. Uh, we've been doing all sorts of things, but we've had to adapt. We do it over Zoom. <laughs> we do it outside in the park with masks on uh, after a tape measure is measured our six to 12 feet apart. And so on the one hand, we're, we're doing everything we normally do, but, but it's different. And, and the church, which is the strengthening, the support, the, the healing, the encouragement, we too are part of this period where where it feels like we're going on doing everything we're doing. And, and yet a lot of us are starting to feel like, uh, what's wrong with me that I'm, I'm not having rich prayer times. I just feel too tired to show up to another Zoom call. Even if this is my home group, these are my friends that are going to help and, and take care of me, but I'm just tired. <laughs> what's wrong with me that I'm, I'm not interested and, I, and I'm losing steam. Today is our 20th anniversary and an appropriate thing to do at an anniversary is to, to look back and to remember to look ahead and imagine. And it's actually well time that our anniversary comes in the midst of this big problem, because what we need is, is to remember rightly. And what we need to do is to look ahead with true hope. And that doesn't come easy. I think for a lot of you, it might be more like tapping on the table and, and remembering. Uh, uh, the only thing I know now is that I, I'm, I'm seeing new levels of, of things that I worry about for the future. There's something about a proper remembering and to look back over 20 years as one community and say, you know what, we've got challenges ahead of us, but, but we can trust that God has been kind. He has sustained us. That doesn't guarantee anything. But it, it helps us not think only of ourselves. And as we look ahead and we remember that the gospel is so hopeful, that even if we don't know what's going to happen this next week or two with the election and the fallout, we, we know that God is faithful to his word, and he's promised good things in the long term. So we're going to look at two passages this morning, Ruth, to help us to look back, and the book of Revelation to help us to look forward. And so let's just look back to the days of Ruth as a way of helping us to look back on our own days. So the book of Ruth records a period of time before the kings, before Saul or David, uh, in the days of the judges. And it's a story that follows a central figure named Naomi with two important people in her life, Ruth and Boaz. And it's a short story and it's a warm human story and it ends well. So it's a favorite book for many people. If you haven't read it, sit down, read it in one reading. What a wonderful story. It ends well, but it doesn't begin very well. It begins like many human stories where things get worse and they get worse. And so you have Ruth who lives, uh, you have Naomi, excuse me, who lives in Bethlehem. Right away that clues us into the significance of this story in the Bible. Who else is from Bethlehem? Well, David is. Jesus is, this is an important story, but it's a, it's a story about a woman named Naomi who, because of a famine, has to leave. And as a reader, I find myself wondering, should she have done that? Should her and Eli Melech, her husband, have left? I don't know. The, the, the book doesn't answer it, but it, it's curious. On the one hand, they had no food, but they're, they're going to the Moabites. They're, they're leaving their own people. I don't know if it was a good choice, and I don't know why things unfolded as they do, but they leave the family and her husband dies, and so there's a tragedy, uh, difficulty. But her, her sons find wives, and the, the text doesn't explain it, but they're there quite a long time, more than 10 years, and, and neither of the women conceive, and so there's no 
no lineage, and, and both boys wind up dying. And there's Naomi now in the land of Moab, having lost every man in her life, her husband, her two sons. And she decides she's going to return to her people, completely dejected and demoralized. And one of her daughters-in-law follows the advice to stay. But Ruth, at the end of chapter one, one of the most famous verses, uh, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God, your people, my people. It's a picture of somebody who comes in to God's people and God's community and joins with him. And her love and her faithfulness is key in Naomi's story. And so the story goes where they, ret- they return and the people of Bethlehem marvel. They're amazed, is this Naomi? And the question, of course, after 10 years, our memory um, are we remembering correctly? Are we confused? But Naomi may have been gone 10 or 12 or 13 years, but she may have looked like she's been gone for 30, given all that she suffered. And so they ask the question, is this Naomi? And you get to the end of chapter one and she answers. And her answer is interesting. In a sense, she says, I was Naomi. The name Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. What she says is, call me Mara. That's a Hebrew word that means bitter. She says, for the Almighty has made my life bitter. And that's her story. She, she comes back among God's people, and, and they look at her, and she's renamed herself. She comes back with a new identity as somebody who's bitter, somebody who's overwhelmed with grief. And this is a, a real human story, a story of life in our world. And yet, the book of Ruth is so wonderful because it shows a, a different narrative. What happens with, with a man like Boaz, who's per, portrayed as this upright, righteous individual, uniquely so, and Ruth, this faithful, loving daughter-in-law. And Boaz is what what they call in those days a kinsman redeemer. The kinsman, he's a relative who then, among God's people, they were supposed to be a nation unlike the other nations. Uh, When tragedy happened, we're, we're to be a community that cares for one another. And so this kinsman redeemer meant, Naomi, if your husband is gone, if your children are gone, you're not left to poverty, but but somebody will will take you in as their own. And and if I'm the next line of kin, I will do that. I will will take you in and take care of you. And so you have this figure of the redeemer. And then you have Ruth, the one who's faithful and stays with her. And then she goes to glean in Boaz's field. And Boaz, the faithful man, also followed the law of Moses, which said we are to feed and make sure that there are no poor among us. And so Boaz has the means to have a field and to have uh, servants. And, and yet as they go, anything that falls to the ground, leave that. If there's any in our midst who need food, Ruth and Naomi needed food. But Boaz didn't just let her into the field, but Boaz blessed her and filled her with more than was warranted. And the story unfolds of what happens in the midst of God's people when you have a redeemer and when you have somebody who's made the Lord their God in your life. And what we have is a picture of, of the church, of of the faithful redeemer who provides, the one who could be hoped in, the one who blesses. And we have the community who comes alongside. And so we read to the end of the story and we find that in the passage that was read, it's a story of restoration. So verses 14 and 15, Naomi's now with the women, not ashamed, not as somebody who is unworthy, not as somebody who has fallen short of her calling, but, but they say, blessed be the Lord. And in verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life, this child a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. It's a story of a woman who said, my life has been emptied of everything, so I'm bitter. And the community around her says, do you see how the Lord has 
filled your life back up, how he has not forgotten, but he's seen you and he's cared for you. And he did this through his redeemer and he's doing this through his community. And now you're here as somebody we're celebrating. And so the story reminds us that God sees people. He sees hurting people. I don't know why our lives unravel as they do, but, but it's not because God does not for us. It's because we need God even more in this world. Uh, but there's that verse that reminds us that this story is a huge story in Naomi's life, a big story of celebration for Ruth and Boaz. But it's a much bigger story in what God is doing. God works in the lives of these suffering people, not only to bring good to them, but through them to do something so remarkable for the whole world. And in verse 17, it says, the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. This child saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed because he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is a story about grandchildren. Naomi is now a grandmother to Obed. Who is Obed? We don't know much about him. His name means one who serves God or one who worships God. I think that's significant. I don't know what he did. But we're told is he became a grandfather to David. We know what David did. David was the king that in the days of Judges, people were waiting for. He's the king. That's one of the top three figures of the Old Testament. The, the one who then would, would be the line that's preserved of another king from Bethlehem, Jesus. They have no idea. She knows her own grief. She knows her own loss. She knows her own sorrow. She starts to see the Lord's provision, but she doesn't know the extent because what the Lord will do through their suffering and their redemption is far bigger than they had any idea. And what an important thing for us to remember together as a church. We have the opportunity to look back over 20 years, and we have not been perfect. It has not been easy. Um, but I don't know that anyone should expect that from a church. But what we hope is that God will be kind and merciful. And, and without a doubt, without a doubt, we see that God has been faithful and kind, and he's He's shown up in our lives. And one of the things about being a New York City church, because so many things about being a church in New York is hard. It's just expensive. People come and go, and it's hard to have stability. It's, it's sad to see people leave. And yet we've always been aware that there's something distinctly strategic about a church in a city like New York. Now, are we a more important church than churches in the suburbs or in rural areas? Not at all. The strategy of the church is among people. But cities have enormous amounts of people. And so New York City needs a lot of churches. We're willing to be one. But because it's so hard, it's easier to, to stop and, and to, to give up or to, to do our bare minimum. But what we've said is, if we give it our all, it may feel harder. But we trust if God is with us, he will do good things. And, and that's what we've seen over the years. We've seen being in a neighborhood of, of one of the leading universities of the world, people, the best and the brightest come and get trained and move to other places. As, as some churches are, are praying, Lord, raise up from our midst somebody to go abroad and bring the gospel. Simply by being hospitable and welcoming people, that's happening all the time. And so, so we stay the course. We, we do the hard work. We we get to know people, we welcome them, and we love them, and, and we open the word, and we pray for each other, and we find that, that God does something in our midst, and we hope that God does something even bigger in our midst. And in our goal to be strategic, we realize, we learn over time that part of the strategy is not simply that the best come to New York and become better, but sometimes the best come to New York and, and their lives fall apart. And I don't know how many people come to New York uh, I don't know how many people move here because they've heard that we have the best churches in the world. I think most people come here because they want 
to be educated. They want to, to establish a career. They want to make it in the arts. Whatever it is, uh, they come here for some other reason. And sometimes tied to that, through the disappointment of things not working out, through burnout, through competition, or through having to maintain that while the reality of life, of illness, of relational brokenness, all of this happens to everyone in New York. It doesn't matter how great our city is. We're not spared from challenges. And in some, in some cases, the identity of being a great city exacerbates how easily people get overwhelmed. And so part of the strategy is not simply to be another strategic institution in the city, but to be a hospitable institution that remembers the goodness and kindness of God. So we're here to encourage people to do all that they do to the glory of God, but we're also here to welcome people when they no longer are able. And we're here to sit with people when they're overwhelmed and we're here to nurture people. And what we find in the days of Ruth and what we found over 20 years is oddly enough, that's also part of God's strategic plan. It doesn't feel that way when, when I've got my plan for my life and I'm overwhelmed trying to fulfill it and I need to stop and help somebody whose plan for their life is falling apart. But, but where we've done it, we have seen um, a greater appreciation for the, the hope of the gospel, for the, the truth of Christianity. And so these last few months anticipating the anniversary, I've been thinking of so many people that I miss and love. Um, and there's one, one woman uh, who came to mind, uh, who came to New York, this bright, talented person, uh, and she came and she, she became a Christian and was baptized at Emmanuel. And her life was going wonderful. And all of a sudden, she had this one year where everything unraveled. She had to be hospitalized twice. She couldn't work. Uh, she was international, so she was limited on what care she could get. And it was a hard, it was more than a year, a hard year in her life. But as a Manhattan church where she could no longer pay rent, um, through people in the church, she went more than a year staying at people's homes. Now, this is New York. Nobody has a basement. I don't know how many people have spare rooms. We already lack space. And it wasn't through a plan. It wasn't through the leadership. It was through the community that didn't know how long they were going to commit. Maybe we could take her in for two months. We don't know if she'll be fine in two months or if she'll be fine in two years. And it was a long period of time, more than a year. But our church did this for one person, and we never talked about it while it was happening. And God worked in the lives of those people who were stretched to welcome somebody into their home. But the, work, the Lord really worked in the life of this person whose goal was to stay in New York, but eventually her visa ran out and she couldn't. But by the time she got there, she was ready to leave. Not that she wanted to leave, but she was made ready because the Lord had healed her sufficiently. And she met a redeemer while she was here. And she met people who have made the Lord their God. And they did what the Lord called them to do. And she went. And so we, like other churches, pray, Lord, raise up people who will go and bring the gospel with them. And she didn't feel the call to be a missionary. She, she had to return because her time came. But she went back to a country where the church doesn't meet openly. And she went back and said, I've met a redeemer. And in the hardest period of my life, the people that know and love him were with me. And now she bears witness to the truth of what's really fundamentally unique about Christianity. And we've been part of that. And so you see this story, not just in our church, but hopefully in any church. You see it in the book of Ruth, where Naomi takes on this identity in chapter one. Call me Mara because, because I have this new identity. She, 
she looks at her experience and, and she says, I'm now a bitter person. That's who I am. And what's remarkable is at the end, there she is restored, redeemed with God's people. And when the, when the local women join in helping provide a name for this grandchild, they don't say, Mara, why don't you name him Obed? They say, look what the Lord has done for Naomi. See, see Ruth was not her name. Uh, Mara was not her name. It was her identity. She, she thought the Lord had left her empty, but she, she just needed to wait because um, at the end of the day, the Lord had made her a pleasant person and the Lord was faithful and she kept her name and her identity. And that happens in the community when, when, our, when our identity falls apart because something's not right and we start to fear for the future. It's our identity in Christ that sustains us. And so we have this story that, that these people can say, look what the Lord did to us. And they have no idea that what the Lord has done is to make Naomi famous, to put Ruth, the Moabite, in the lineage, not just of the King David, but of Jesus, the Savior. They have no idea. And in the same way, I have this confidence that over the last 20 years, somebody has been in our midst. I have no idea who, because we don't know the future. Somebody who will make an outsized impact for their life. And we may not know who it is, but if we have been in their life and if we've given them something of the truth of Christianity, if we have loved them or equipped them, we can celebrate to say, we don't know what the Lord will have done at the end of the days, but he gave us these 20 years and it was worth it. And so to remember the past helps us in the present because right now it's kind of hard. We've gotten used to being able to wake up and cook our breakfast during the first part of the service and to catch up on our work during the sermon and there's something about Zoom that just makes it hard to imagine that we'll ever take the effort to get dressed and show up at church. And so how are we going to really be in each other's lives through our struggles? It seems like it's easy to give up. Um, there's a reminder that church is never to give up. It's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be pleasant. And there may be disappointment. We don't know what the future holds. It's hard now. But we could look back the last 20 years with a certain confidence and say, but the Lord was with us. And that guarantees nothing for the future. But it tells us about the God that we rest in. And it says that we don't need to give up, pressing on, doing the work, facing the hard tasks, not just of watching out for ourselves, but of looking to God and watching out for others. So let's remember what God has done and gain some assurance from that. I want to look ahead just a little bit from the book of Revelation and so as we look ahead and remember that Christianity is hopeful, it also reminds us that, that we can do it. We can face the present hardship or whatever we will face in the next 5, 10, or 20 years. Many people know about this idea of, a, of an iceberg. It's a common metaphor of, of what's seen, which is above the surface, but, but, but there's a lot more that's unseen. The book of Revelation tells us that's our reality. There's what we see. And the book of Revelation is written to various churches, but all of them are struggling in some way. And what they see maybe is threatening persecution and death. What they may see is people who are afraid, so they're giving up their faith. They may see people who are so prosperous that they wonder, is it worth struggling to be Christian? And this is a book of Revelation. God shows something to John who records it for us to say, but there's more going on than what you're seeing and experiencing. There's more going on than COVID. There's more going on uh, than a divided nation. There's more going on than this very fraught, discouraging election. There's more going on than the international news that we haven't been able to stay up on because we're so focused on our own troubles. The book of Revelation says right now, and so we have this picture in Revelation 7 
of something simultaneously while we're here on earth, the Lord is in the heavenly realms and it's glorious. And so it's happening simultaneously to say there's more right now that we don't see, but it's a future reality because for whatever reason, God has left us on the earth. And so for us, it's happening now, but we're not experiencing it, but we're told, trust the Lord and you will. And so what we're told is the ways of Jesus are exactly what you need and what this world needs, but it's going to be hard. You're going to want to give up. You're not going to want to be generous. You're not going to want to forgive people. You're not going to want to let the persecutor uh, be one who prays for them. And yet the world is going to try to pull you in. And this revelation says, don't give in. Stay the course. Look to Jesus and he will sustain you. And, and, And if you are sustained, know what is before you. This miserable period you're in is misleading. It's not the whole of your identity, your life, your experience, your future. And so in verses 14 to 17, we have this picture where John is confused. They say, who are these? John says, who are these people? Uh, He's asked this question with the white robes. And uh, he's asked that question. and, And John, for all that he knows, far more than I assume than we know, his answer is, sir, you know, speaking to the angel showing him this. And the angel says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. See, there is another side to suffering. Even if it's a great tribulation, there's another side to it. People will come out of it if they've been with God in it. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That picture of of not being guilty or ashamed before God, but being clothed, cleansed, and covered. As we go through this period thinking, "I'm I'm not good enough for anything, for my job, for my family, for the church, we're told, hold on, God, God is doing something bigger. And so we're given this picture where then in verse 15, we're told that they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And the one who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And that's one of the things that we take hold of. We are a people who are not alone in the world, but, but God is with us. And so what do we have as a church? We have, we have Emmanuel. That's the name of our church. That's what we have that makes us different from other institutions. We have God with us. God will shelter us with his presence. That day when we're in his presence, somehow it will fill us. It will will redeem and restore. And so in verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. We long for that to be now, but we're told it will be. Don't give up. And then we're told in, in verse 17, he will guide them to springs of living water. And then we're told God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this may be a a time of intensification of our tears. And we're not told, it doesn't matter. We're not told what's wrong with you, that you're taking this so hard. Why are you so sensitive? We're told don't give up. Uh, Stay the course because God is is with us. We have a redeemer and we have the people who look to that God. And one day we're going to see a greater reality. And that greater reality for our time period, what a vision in verses 9 to 10 is right now we're facing an election to think, is there any possibility of uniting a polarized country? Who has the plan? Who has the integrity? Who has the leadership to bring this divided people together? And I suspect most of us are assuming no one. I, what are you assuming in the next year that all of a sudden uh, we will be renewed so that racial issues in our country have been resolved? Is, is that your expectation? I, I don't mean to be cynical, um, but there's this sense in what what, what humanity shows us is we're very skilled at accusing and dividing and harming. We're not very good at unity. And so we have a vision in verses 9 and 10. I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, 
from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And that's it. At the end of the day, it's, it's not us. We're not going to do it. But we don't give up hope because that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. We, we keep pressing on. We, we strive for unity. We love one another. We, we do the work on earth, but we do it because we have a Savior who is working in our midst and who one day will bring his work to completion. And it's that vision that we need to grasp if we're to face the discouraging present and not simply give up and say, you know what, it's too hard. It's never meant to be easy. It's meant to be good. And so the Lord will bless us in the hard work and the Lord will give us days of relief. But the Lord will show us at the end of the day, it was never about us and what we could accomplish, but it was about him and his great plan. And so we have this paradox, the the unique presentation of Christianity in verse 17. You know, in Ruth, we read about David. And and what do we remember about David? Numerous things, but, but one of the greatest contributions David gives is that the boy who was the shepherd but was brave enough to fight Goliath becomes the king. And he writes the words of Psalm 23, one of the most beautiful portions of literature in the world. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. And now we're told that through that story that continued long after the days of Ruth to the days of Jesus, that's continuing in our days. In verse 17, the lamb that John sees in this heavenly vision in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. How are we going to be led to still waters? And that's what Christianity says is one day there is a true king. There is a man of integrity. There is a man who will fulfill the law. There is a man of righteousness. There is a man of godliness. And he is our shepherd. But the unique contribution of Christianity is the shepherd becomes the lamb. He comes in our midst as one of us so that as we're shedding one another's blood and it's crying out for justice, Jesus lets his blood be shed so that it would cleanse people of their sin. And he gives them a white robe so that they would not stand naked and ashamed before the Lord, but they would be welcomed in this innumerable multitude. And as we remember that vision, that reality, we're told to don't give up. <laughs> and what will keep us from giving up? Well, our first and foremost identity as a community is we're a worshiping community. We're a community that assembles to give thanks and to adore God. And sometimes we struggle to do it. Sometimes we do it as an act of discipline. But if you have any connection to this heavenly vision to say the way of Jesus is right, don't lose heart, don't cave in, love, give, serve, be generous, forgive, be patient, do to others as the Lord has done to you. As we have this vision of worship, we're sustained and told we can do it. And so as a church, we talk about these four relationships, the relationship with God, within ourselves, with others, and with the world. And the foremost relationship that needs to be restored, restoration is needed in all of them, is is the relationship with God. What we do as a church, fundamentally, we call people to worship. We assemble people. We say we are a community. Come in our midst. We have a redeemer. Come and be with us. And let's remember the greatness of God who promises good things and who gave himself for us. And we do that in our own practice to encourage one another. But that's our task to, to live in this city, to tell people in this great city, There's something even greater. And the greatness of what you see in this city will burn you out and crush your identity. But the greatness of what we see in the heavenly city will enable you to to stay here and do the great things the Lord has given you to do. And so we 
assemble people to worship. We say, be reconciled to God. Jesus has made it possible through forgiveness. But we believe that ourselves, uh, the relationship we have within our divided selves, we, we experience healing because being reconciled to God, we, we have a name that endures. We have a hope. We have a new identity. And therefore, we could revisit our past traumas. We could deal with our inadequacies. We can face what is challenging, knowing that if God is with us, he will bring us through. And, and that helps and that heals us and that sustains us. And so as we relate to others, there's the saying that hurt people hurt people. We're told to join a community and to become a healed people and to remember the favor of the Lord and to experience his generosity to you so that you can then go out to a hurting world and not participate in it, but, but push against it. And so then we engage the world where broken people engage the world in broken ways. We, we do our work and the arts and we engage culture in new ways. And so the musician doesn't have to practice hard so that your performance will give enough applause to know that you're a decent human being and you've spent the last few months well. But you could practice hard to know that the Lord is giving you something to give to people and what joy to assemble people and, and give them your gift. That's how we don't burn out. That's how we renew our world and our work. And so as a church, we are a church that looks ahead with hope to the Redeemer. Last year, we had the sermon series on faith, hope, and love, these anchor points, because Everything passes away, but faith, hope, and love endure. This is the weekend where we remember the Reformation. Faith is central. Faith looks back and we say, if Jesus died for us, if our sins are forgiven, if he's been raised, no matter what we're seeing in the present, there's more. And we can rest in that. And we have this hope of this heavenly vision that if we are faithful and if God watches over us, we will get there and our tears will be wiped and we will celebrate and we will fall on our faces in worship. And so what do you do today? you love. you love God and neighbor. That's your task. And you can do it. You can do it if the love of God is in you. And so I want to encourage you, don't give up. And so if you're alumni, if there's anything we've ever said over the years that has helped you, that's equipped you, uh, remember it and, and bring it into your church, <laughs> wherever you are now. If you're not connected to a church, we, we have open doors. Come and, and we may not love you perfectly, but we will show you who can. But you can be in our midst and we will, we will share life with you. And to those of you who will be part of the next 20 years at Emmanuel, it will be tempting to say it's just easier to do other things. And we look back and we say, but it's, it's been better to push ourselves and to trust God. And what I want to say is God calls us to love him and to love others. And if we do that, he will do great things. And so when you come across somebody who's tearing and you don't know if you could stop tearing, remember, there's a, a heavenly future that your tears will be wiped. And so you can do it. You can stop and wipe the tears of the others. If, if you're starting to worry about how you'll be sustained, remember the one who is rich who became poor for your sake. And so remember that your riches are stored up for you and, and you can be generous. When you don't want to forgive and you don't want to let go, remember that God is always gracious to you. And, and so live out of that reality. Um, if we're doing that, God will do great things in and through us. We can believe it. And so Let's not give up, but let's worship the Lord and take every opportunity by faith to serve him. I'm going to pray for us. Our Father, as we're assembled today, we give thanks for what you have done. We have faith in what you promised that you will do. Lord, we also confess that we waver. We don't know how you'll do it. We don't know where you are perhaps now. We're tiring. We're losing heart. Thank you that we have a Redeemer, that we have Emmanuel, that we have Jesus with us in our midst 
that he loved us and gave himself for us. And thank you that we have a hope that he has not forgotten us, but he will lead us and we will come to still waters and our thirst will be quenched. Lord, we long for that day and we pray that we would be there by faith today, but we pray that that would be so real in our lives as a community that worships and gives thanks, that we would bring that reality into the world with our message and with our actions, that, that we would be people who have the reality of your love so that those in our neighborhoods who don't would also have a redeemer. And so Lord, we know that the glory has always been to you, but we give thanks for what you've done through so many wonderful people. And we pray you'd continue to do it through us, a humble people, but a people with a great God. Um, may we trust you and our church to this next season, we pray in his name. Amen.